Situational ethics became popular in the 1960s by Joseph Fletcher. He was an Episcopal priest, member of the Euthanasia Education Council, advocate of Planned Parenthood, and supporter of abortion. He passed away in 1991. Fletcher held that decision-making should be based upon the circumstances of any situation and not upon any fixed law or standard. He said, the only absolute is love. Let me give you a quote. Only the command to love is categorically good. We are obliged to tell the truth, for example, only if the situation calls for it. His theory states, each situation is so different from every other situation that it is questionable whether a rule which applies to one situation can be applied to all situations like it, since the others may not really be like it. In other words, there is no set standard that determines right from wrong. Well, let me give you an illustration. Imagine you're a college student and you are caring for a terminally ill parent. You have a term paper uh, that is due shortly, but don't have the time to really do the research necessary. Situational ethics would say it's fine for you to pay for someone to do your paper because caring for the sick parent is the greater good. That's how this works. Let me ask you this. Do we have a set standard when it comes to the realm of truth? And the answer obviously is yes. So let's take a look at the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. John 1, 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. I love that our God is full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the series on the attributes of God, the communicable attributes of God. And today, as we look that you are truth, help us to understand how we are to employ this personally. Bless our study and all those who are partaking today. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Here is point number one. It's a simple point. Know the God of truth. Know the God of truth. He is the only true God and desires you to know him personally. Uh, spring forward to John chapter 17, and I love verse 3. This is in Christ's high priestly 
prayer. And down in John 17, in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. To know experientially is the idea. The only, and catch the word here, true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Our God is the true God, and he wants us to have a relationship, a growing relationship with him. Jesus is also the true God. Uh, You're in John. Go all the way to the right of your Bible just before Revelation to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, considering how Jesus is also the true God. 1 John 5, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him, that's God the Father, who is true, and we are in him, or another reference to God the Father, but he who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Earlier we saw God is true. He's the true God, but very clearly Jesus Christ, the nearest antecedent to the word this, is the true God and eternal life. Often in Scripture, Jesus is described as being true. Uh, He is the true light. That's John chapter 1 and verse 9. He is the true bread, John chapter 6 and verse 32, and he is the true witness, Revelation chapter 3, down in verse 14. So not only is God true, the true God, but so also is his son, Jesus Christ, the true God. How do you come to know this God of truth and what is truth? Uh, It's through his word. So go to the middle of the Bible, uh, which would be around Psalm 117, 118. Just go over a little bit to your right to Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible pertaining almost exclusively to the word of God. So Psalm 119, 142, your righteousness is, is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. God's law, one of the synonyms used in Psalm 119, speaking of the word of God, is truth. Stay with me. Uh, Now let your eye come down to verse 151. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. And then down to verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth. Think about that. The entirety of your word, all of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. We come to know about this true God from the word of God. The God of truth, he cannot lie. To the New Testament now, book of Titus, New Testament, book of Titus, chapter 1. Begin in verse 1 with me. Paul, 
a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, if you will, truth and godliness go hand in hand, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. How do we know that the offer of eternal life through Jesus Christ is valid, that it is genuine, that it is sincere? God cannot lie. And we see this expressed so clearly here in Titus chapter 1. You can hold to the promises of God because our God cannot lie. And just to emphasize this, now over to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability where the idea is not able to change, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Once again, we can embrace the promises of God. Why? He cannot lie. So, number one, we have to know the God of truth. You are called to know him personally. And then number two, live according to God's truth. You you have to understand who he is, and when you grasp the nature of our God being true, then you need to live according to that truth. The telephone rings. It's a call for Jenny. And you know Jenny's home, but she doesn't want to speak to the person calling. So because you love Jenny, you lie and say she is not home. That's situational ethics. Or your wife wants you to get an appliance fixed. So you call the repair shop, but you concoct a story because you want to press your item to be put on the top of the list. So you fabricate, you make up a story to tug on the compassion of the repair person or the shop there. You've lied. Why? It's all right because it's for the greater good. It's for your wife. That's situational ethics. I can remember some years ago being over at Lowe's, went to the appliance department. We were having some difficulties with a refrigerator that we had purchased there. And I knew the salesman uh, I've talked to him. He knows I'm a pastor. We've had interaction in the past. And so we had to call, I guess, the, the company that furnished uh, that particular refrigerator. And he gets on the phone, and here my wife and I are standing, and he starts to tell this story to the person on the other end of the phone. 
how my wife is expecting. And she, and by the way, she's at 55. So I kind of looked at her at the time and I thought, is there something you're not telling me? How she's expecting. And we have all these little children at home and the babies need a, a good refrigerator to store that milk. Now, the salesperson, according to situational ethics, was doing the right thing because the greater good is what? It's to love. It's so therefore, if you, you embellish the circumstances, or in this case, you out and out lie about the circumstances, that's okay. But may I say to you, biblically, that's not okay. When you have these kinds of lies, they do not derive from the nature and the person of God, but rather from the wicked one. And we know from John eight forty four, he's a murderer and he's also a liar. He's a liar. He speaks from his own resources and we should not imitate him in any way, shape, or form. So live according to God's truth and we'll see here to have fellowship with him. If you want to know this God of truth, you've got to align your life with truth, because that is the only way that you can walk with the true God. Uh, back to the middle of your Bible, and this time we want to go to Psalm 15. Psalm 15, and we'll pick it up in verse 1. There are two questions that are asked in verse one, and a synonymous parallelism. In, in other words, both questions are asking the same thing. To repeat it so you would stop and ponder what is being queried here, the question that is being given. Verse one, Lord, who may abide? And the word abide here, the Hebrew ger, has the concept of a temporary stay. Who may abide? in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill. In the Middle East, as in many places around the world, the concept of hospitality is sacred. So even a desert wanderer, a Bedouin, if he were to invite you to come into his tent, he has the right to do so, but he wants to really have communion or fellowship or interaction with the person who is invited in. So who may abide in God's presence? Who is it that God says, hey, come into my tent? I want to have fellowship with you. The answer, he who walks uprightly, he who lives tamim. It has the idea here of integrity, the concept of wholeness. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness is the individual that can come into God's tent, that practices what is right. Notice this at the end of verse 2, and speaks the truth in his heart. See, since God is true and his Son is true, then it's essential for us to walk in truth in order to have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and actually with one another also. So we, God is looking for the individual who walks uprightly, works righteousness, and speaks the truth in his heart. A New Hampshire farmer approached his veterinarian and asked, what should I do about my horse who limps 
every other day. Very seriously, the veterinarian looked and said, sell the horse on a day he doesn't limp. (laughs) If we are to have fellowship with God, we cannot practice situational ethics. We need to be individuals who work according to the standard of God's truth. I remember watching parents, Christian parents even, throughout the years, because they would want their child in what they would consider a better school district would lie and say that that child is living with a relative when actuality that was not true. See, again, that's practicing situational ethics, and we are not called, we are not called to be purveyors of lies because there's some greater good that we're going to get out of that. So we live according to God's truth, but also in order to worship him. If you want to not only have fellowship, be invited into the tent of God, but also to worship him, it's essential that truth is part of that fellowship package. Uh, Let's go back to the Gospel of John. We learn so much about the life of Jesus from John's Gospel and his heart to win all people to himself. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So in this 21-chaptered book, we learn about the signs that Jesus had performed. A sign points you to something or someone else. These signs point that Jesus is God, that you might have fellowship with the God who is true, the true God, the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Son who belongs to the classification of being God. Our Lord wants us to practice truth when it even comes to our worship. Today, there's such an emphasis in worship upon the spirit. In, in essence, the, the push is the emotion. The push is on just feeling good about yourself. But if your worship is not predicated upon truth, all the emotion in the world is not going to get you closer to God because we're going to see the worship must be in spirit and in truth. Are you with me here? Let me just read this to you. John chapter 4, coming down to verse 22, and then I'll read through verse 24 and then comment. Jesus says to the woman of Samaria, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. To the Samaritan woman, who had a skewed system of worship, It's believed that the Samaritans only acknowledged the first five books of the Old Testament. They had an amalgamated religion. In other words, they did not have a pure, a pure religion. It was tainted. 
and Jesus confronts her with that truth. It, it, it intrigues me here as you look at verse 22. Jesus says so boldly, you worship what you do not know. The Samaritans were a mixed ethnicity. They go back to the Assyrian captivity. So they were either intermarried with Assyrians or those that the Assyrians brought into captivity also. So they're not pure Jews in the true sense of the word. Jesus says, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Later, the people who come to Christ, uh, down in verse 42, will acknowledge that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Messiah came through the line of Abraham, and Jesus expresses this. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now is when the true worship, see the genuine worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And see, that's what the Father is looking for, people to worship him in spirit and truth. That's why we need to divide the word accurately. And isn't that what Paul admonishes Timothy to do? Study to show yourself approved to God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Second Timothy 2.15, I believe that was from the King James I quoted. You get the idea. We got to cut it straight. We got to know what the word of God says. Why? Because if we're going to worship him in spirit and truth, we have to understand the nature of God and what he expects of us, or else it's not genuine, sincere worship. So we live according to God's truth to worship him, but also we live according to God's truth to overcome Satan. Truth overcomes the evil one. Over to the book of Ephesians here as we begin wrapping up our study. Over to the book of Ephesians and to the armor of God section, Ephesians chapter 6. Just on my desk is sits 268 pages. It's a book that I've just completed writing on this. Lord willing, we'll We'll have uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians on fire out by year's end. So I've, I've immensely enjoyed what Paul gives us via the Holy Spirit as he sits under house arrest in Rome. Here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, finally, my brethren, notice this, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then the analogy which derives from Paul being chained to a Roman soldier, 24-7. Put on, that's a command, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the methodias, the methods of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. The evil day is the day of temptation, and having done all, to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore, and observe the words, having girded, is a middle voice verb. The subject in some way acts upon itself. The child of God needs to put on this belt or this girdle 
of truth. See, the girdle or the belt held all the other pieces of the armor together. So stand therefore, having girded your waist with what? Truth. Why is this essential? Because Satan is a formidable opponent. We cannot match him blow for blow. We need to draw upon the power of God and both the defensive and offensive weapon that is given to us through the word of God. But we need to be wrapped in truth if we're going to overcome the wicked one. This is essential for victory in the Christian life. And I pray we take this to heart, that we just wrap our lives, we center it around God's truth. Uh, in John 17, 17, in Christ's high priestly prayer, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. We need to take God's word and, if you will, let it saturate our lives. We need to be individuals who know his truth in order that we can not only worship him, but then have victory over the wicked one. Jesus used the truth of God's word when Satan came after him in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. He quoted from the scripture. Even Michael the archangel in the book of Jude, when he is having this debate with the wicked one. See, he dared not bring a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In essence, this powerful archangel did not stand in his own strength, but the strength of the Lord. And in closing, the Holy Trinity is replete, full of truth. Think about each member of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And this is how I want to close us out. In Exodus chapter 34, in verse 6, referring to God, it says that he is abounding. He is full of goodness and truth. When you examine the nature, the character of Almighty God, God the Father, he is full of truth. He's true. He possesses truth. He cannot lie. This is his nature. And then we transition to the Son. And remember our initial scripture reading from John chapter 1 in verse 14? What did we learn about Jesus? He is full of grace, but not only grace, God's favor, but of truth. Jesus Christ, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Since our God is invisible, that was John 1, 18, Jesus came to reveal the nature of the Father, to show us what the true God is like. So God very kindly sent his only begotten Son, who is also full of grace and truth. And then the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, we learn how essential 
the Spirit would be. Jesus would leave and then send his Spirit in order to minister to his followers and actually to help the followers to remember those apostles, the Word of God, so they could pen it accurately. That's John 14 and verse 26. But in John 16, down in verse 13, we learn that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And what will the Spirit of truth do? He will guide us into all truth. So number one, know the God of truth. Draw near to him by understanding his word. Know him. He sent his son to die for you that you might have this personal relationship with him. Know the God of truth. And then number two, live according to God's truth. May God's word, and not this world system with his ethics, become your standard. May God's word that gives us the heart of God, the nature of God, and how that God wants us to live, let us make sure we live according to God's truth. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We have learned so much today. We thank you that you are a God of truth, as is the Son, as is the Spirit. So we thank you that we are to know this God of truth. Help that to be our ambition in life, and then help us to live according to his truth. Help us to be individuals that align our hearts with truth so you can invite us into your tent. And then as we leave that tent, so to speak, Lord, because we have fellowshiped with you to show the rest of the world that you are the true God. I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching today's sermon. Uh, there is a book that is the basis for the 14 lessons, Attributes of God on Fire. Uh, there are actually 10 other fire books where you can learn more about us at comermanorbiblechurch.com. And then I have a foundation, Ken J. Bird Senior Foundation.com. And finally, we have a father and son podcast. We would love to have you join us. God bless you.